My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to walk us through the text this morning. It's kind of a, a fun day for me. Kind of been a lot of stuff going on lately in my life. It's been, we, uh, we moved last weekend. It was pretty sweet. Went to Prague two weeks before that for two weeks, which is pretty fun. Uh, today's my birthday. Thank you. Uh, my wife is pregnant. We're doing January. Baby girl. If you, uh, if you didn't know that yet, it's because uh, I didn't tell you yet, so there you go. So. <laughs> Baby girl, come in January, pretty fun. The name is Mind Your Own Business, so there you go. <laughs> but turning 31, you know, 30 wonderful. Remember when my mom turned 41, she'd say I'm 40 wonderful, and I'm 30 wonderful. So, but the turning 30, it's kind of interesting the, um, what happens when you turn 30. Like I'm a pretty competitive person, I like to play stuff, I like to do stuff. I don't really like playing games, I like winning games, you know, that's why. So I don't like playing a lot of games. Uh, and it, it, so just turning 30 this year, I've, uh, I tore a muscle in my forearm playing spike ball, which is like lame volleyball, you know. And then, then I tore something in my groin, uh, bruised all up down the leg, you know, playing kickball. Uh, today I'm kind of limping a little bit because I was sitting crisscross on the floor yesterday. <clears throat> Also tore some stuff in my ankle, you know, so a lot of bruising all the way through, you know, like it kind of, not just like injuries, but I remember uh, after I hurt my groin, I was at summer camp uh, playing kickball, winning kickball, obviously, and I was limping around and someone said, what, did you just turn 30? And, and he said, yeah, there's a way you have to play once you turn 30. And someone else here told me, yeah, once you turn 30, you have to really start warming up and stretching. And I'm like, hmm. So anyway, I kept tearing stuff because I did not want to learn the different way. You know, there's a different way. I didn't want to learn that way. I want to keep doing it the old way, which is the way I did it since I was like a kid, which was all hard all the time, uh, no exceptions. And so now there's kind of this, I'm having to learn the way, you know, 31s. And they told me, the guy told me this was Matt Dresbeck or MC Gilbert. He said, you have to learn the way to play once you're, once you turn 30, and so I'm out. I, my 30th year, I learned. Four injuries later, you have to play a different way. But this, like, resisting the way, you know, being told there's a way to do it, you know, there's directions, a.k.a. suggestions when you buy stuff, you know. I don't, I don't like, it's kind of like in our bones as Americans, as especially Arizonans. I don't know if any of you, but there's like this my way thing. I don't want to do somebody else's way. I don't want to listen to advice. People ask me if I went to the doctor for his injuries. No, because I'm not going to listen to what they say. So why would I go? So <laughs> thank you for that advice. You know, we don't like being told the way. Uh, there's a way to do it. This is one of the reasons why this John 14 text, if you need a memory verse, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, we as Americans just don't like that. What do you mean there's a way? What do you mean there's a right way and a wrong way? What do you mean there's one path? What do you mean there's one access point? What do you mean there's one, one gate? What do you mean there's a gatekeeper? Can't they do it my way? We just don't like that. Even those of us who raised Christians or became Christians or recently Christians, there's still like a, a my way thing deep in our bones that Jesus pushes against. Now, everyone who has a relationship with me has a different relationship with me, right? I have a different relationship with my wife than my son, than my mother, than my father, than some of you. So, so there's, that's not to say that it's not a personal way, 
right? Relationships, so everyone has their own relationship with Jesus, uh, but there must be a relationship with Jesus. He is the way. And so this idea of the way, the truth, and the life is what we're gonna see in this text here. And Jesus says a lot of stuff about the way. What it is, what it's not. Who it is, who it's not. How it is, how it's not. And I just want us as, as a church to kind of, you know, we just ended our countercultural conviction series. If you kind of wanna know where we're at on controversial stuff, you can go back and listen to that. But it's not like being countercultural, we put that aside and now we're kind of congruent with the way that our secular neighbors think and feel. This sermon is as countercultural as any of the, from the last seven, eight weeks because Jesus is the way. He's the way to the Father. And what that means is there's no other way to the Father. And what that means is all the ways we're trying besides Jesus are a waste, counterproductive. It's a narrow path. It's a personal narrow path and we have to walk it. So I want us to pray and I want us to have a heart that really is teachable this morning. Uh, if you grew up in church, there kind of might be a, the way, the truth, and the life, got it, check, you know. It's good to be reminded, it's good to be encouraged. Uh, but I'm just aware that a lot of you who are in this room or watching online, you're kind of like, man, that sounds pretty narrow. Uh, it sounds pretty constrictive. It sounds pretty exclusionary. And I understand that. But I also want you to hear that, that it's good that it's good that it's this way. It's not like, well, that's the way it is. Wah, wah, guess I have to agree with God. But it's good that Jesus is the way. It's good for us. That's not constrictive or confining, but it's actually liberating that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Let me pray, and then we'll walk through this text. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you show us that you're the way. I do ask that you would expose in our hearts all the different ways, truths, and lives that we trust in and help us let go of those. Help us cling to you above all these things. And God, I do ask that you would uh, really help us see your goodness even as we walk through this text. Amen. Amen. So here's the context. We're jumping back into John 14. So we were preaching through John, took a break, did countercultural convictions, and now we're back into John. What's really important is what comes before John 14 is John 13. John 13 is like the high drama, narrative slows down part of the book of John. What happens in John 13 is Jesus starts doing crazy stuff. He starts washing the disciples' feet, slave jobs, servant jobs, things that God should not do, things that dignified people should not do, things that people with money and means should not do. But here's Jesus taking off his robe and washing his disciples' feet, and they're all freaked out by it. Lord, what are you doing? And he tells Peter, I need to wash your feet. Peter goes, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, I need to wash your feet or you won't be with me forever. Jesus, Peter goes, wash my whole body then. You know, and he's kind of, do this thing. And then all of a sudden he washes all these people's feet, including Judas. And then it goes really intense and it goes, one of you is gonna betray me. And he tells Judas, do the thing you're about to do. And Judas storms out. All the disciples are like, what is going to happen? Then Peter goes, Jesus, I will never deny you. And Jesus goes, I believe that you believe that, but you're gonna do it. <laughs> you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows. So not only are you not going to, not only are you going to deny me, but you're gonna deny me very soon, very quickly. Not like over your lifetime, you're gonna you know, peter out on your faith, but you're going to tomorrow, this morning, deny me. 
So right after Judas has gone out to betray Jesus, right after the most confident person in the group gets told, you're gonna deny me, the way that Jesus follows this is chapter 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. What good news is that? Redemption Gateway, all of you in this room, you will deny Jesus. You will betray him. You will sin. You will have a commitment you make to him. Never again, Lord. You will say, I would never. You would say, I would never do them, and you'll do them. How many times have you done that? That's the last time I do that sin. That's the last time I do that thing. That's the last time I have that doubt. No more. This time I'm all in. Guess what? You'll do it again. And here's what Jesus says to you. Let not your heart be troubled. This is one of the beautiful things about the love of Jesus is it's really sober. He knows exactly what we have done, what we are doing, and what we will do, and he still assures us of his grace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Trust in me. See, what happens is a lot of times we, in our secular cultural moment, we say we don't believe in salvation by works, but we believe in salvation by good intentions. And Jesus is saying, don't trust your good intentions. Don't trust your good works. Don't trust your effort. Don't trust your competence. Don't trust your common sense. Don't trust your savings account. Don't trust your investment account. Don't trust your IRA. Don't trust your 401k. Don't trust your serving role at church. Don't trust your leadership role at church. Believe, trust. You believe in God. Believe in me also. You're going to deny me, Peter. But in my father's house are many rooms. And I'm still going to prepare a place for you. How sweet is that? All you people sitting there, me up here, we're all gonna sin, we're all gonna blow it, we're all gonna deny him, we're all gonna say that thing, we're all gonna do that thing, and he's still preparing room for us. Isn't it like the mark of hospitality, right? It's grace extended with nothing expected in return. You know, we just went and visited my sister-in-law in Prague, and they have a newborn baby that has its own nice little room, and they move their baby out of its room back into their room and were woken up all night by its squawking or crying, I think is the right word, you know. Did not get me real excited about having another baby, you know. (laughs) But they made room for us and conveniencing themselves. We didn't do anything to earn it. They just made space. That Jesus makes space for us in conveniencing himself. We don't earn it. We just receive it. Not trying harder, trying harder, trying harder. That this is the way. The way of receiving. The way of sola gracie, grace alone. The way of Jesus providing. Not the way of us contributing. Jesus doesn't split the bill. You don't go to lunch with Jesus and he says, it's two tabs, please. He picks it up all the way. You ever try to buy someone dinner and they keep arguing with you about splitting the bill and it's really annoying? Just let me buy you dinner. That's like what all of you do to Jesus all the time. Every time you try to earn something from him. He's trying to buy you dinner and you're trying to split the bill. It's not how it works. This is the way, the way of receiving. Jesus is the way. He says, I'm preparing you this room. Where I'm going, you'll be with me also. I think there's a lot of people in this room who like you being told Jesus is the way is hard for you because you're going, but I wanna do it my own way and the doing it your own way looks like obvious rebellion, right? But I really like drinking a lot, but I really like 
sleeping around, but I really like watching that stuff, but I really like, you know, all like the obvious rebellion stuff. All the stuff that like you do when you're a teenager because you think you're an original thinker, but you're just doing what all the other teenagers do, you know. But a lot of us, probably most of us in this room who are kind of like not obviously rebellious, there's like this, this my own way thing. It's, I'm trusting in my good works, my good intentions, my good deeds, and I'm gonna do this thing. It's called like sins of the spirit, pride, haughtiness, believing that we're better than other people. Most of the, the teachers in church history taught that the sins of the spirit were more destructive than the obvious sins of the flesh because we lie to ourselves way more easily about the sins of the spirit. You can see sins of the flesh. Did it, didn't do it, black, white, right? But sins of the spirit, you can defend yourself with good intentions. No, it's not really what I was thinking. No, it's much more easy to rationalize and justify haughtiness, pridefulness. I'm earning something from God. He owes me stuff. It's the way. Which, maybe you're kind of both. Most people are kind of both. You know, there's these sins of the flesh that, you know, I struggle with. It's not really struggling. It's just doing it and then having some regrets so you say you struggle. Or this kind of haughtiness, just who's better? How do we rank? You know, trying to do the compare yourself to other Christians thing. Well, I'm not great, but I'm that and the way that you really know when you have sins of the spirit is when there's like this kind of general entitlement that lives, and you know you have entitlement when you're not just overflowing and gushing with gratitude. Like really the absence of gratitude is, for me in my heart, the real indicator of when I'm harboring these sins of the spirit because it's going, I'm not, I don't walk around just feeling grateful for everything, but I feel entitled to certain things and really grateful for things that are exceptionally out of the norm. Every moment we're not gushing with gratitude, we're not walking in the way of Jesus. He's the way. Not only is the way, but he's the truth. So we also think we're truth people. We really do, you know? Uh, I don't know, was, we just got a new house. We moved last week, last Saturday, and you know, we saw like four scorpions right in the house, you know? Text my realtor, can I get my money back? And text back, LOL. Um, you know, those of you who are new to Arizona, is, you just need to know, there are scorpions in your house. I saw a good buddy of mine at the park yesterday. He was like, there's no scorpions in my house. And I just kind of let him think that, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whenever someone says, there's no scorpions in my house, I go, have you gotten a black light and walked around at night? They're there, man. They're there. <laughs> but we don't want to know the truth, right? We don't want to know the truth, right? So yesterday I was, you know, cutting a dog door in my house, which, you know, I wounded my house for an animal, you know, cut a, cut a hole, cut a hole in it. And then uh, Jay was helping with his measuring tape, you know, taking measurements. Um, or just opening and closing the measuring tape. And then by his foot, scorpion this big, you know. Ah, man. I don't want to know the truth. I don't want to see these scorpions, you know, so, but I rushed over to Amazon, black light. So this morning I went out, it's my birthday, started the day right, scorpion hunting, <laughs> you know. And I was finding scorpions, like those big meaty ones, you know, like where you you know, they leave a mess when you get them. But we got a baker's dozen this morning, 13. 
Um, yeah, that's the other thing too, is like these pest control companies, they don't exist. <laughs> There's pest attempted control companies. Man, the black light tells you the truth about your house. You don't want it, but it's, it's hard, you know? It's nice to living in ignorance. You know, the same way, like, we had to get, we had to get tested um, for COVID to go to Prague, you know, and you sit in your car and you have to stick the thing up your nose, and it's like, I don't want to know the truth. I want to go to Prague. <laughs> you know? I really did it. I wasn't, you know, misrepresenting. But you know, there's a piece of me that's like, I don't want to know if I have COVID. I want to go to Prague. You know, we don't, we believe we want to know the truth, but we don't, we're not, we're not that big on truth, people. You know, Jesus is the truth. Truth means reality. Uh, aletheia in Greek could be truth or reality. What's real? What's true? What's, what's concrete? What's objective? This is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the truth. A lot of people think that truth is like propositions and, and math and two plus two equals four and knowing facts, but more basic than even facts that are like scientifically inductively studied is the reality of God. That God is truth, that Jesus is truth. A lot of like truth-oriented people, if you're not a Jesus-connected person, you're not a truth-oriented person. A lot of times we want to know what is, what do we want to know the truth about God? And so we, we speculate and we research and philosophers have written for thousands of years about what is God? Well, he's omnipotent. He's, om, he's omniscient. He's all, he's all these other things. He's all these different characteristics. But most basically, if we want to know the truth about what God is like, we look at a person and that's the person Jesus. Philip is confused by this. He's going, where are you going? How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father through me. If you knew me, you would have known my Father also. Philip says, Philip's been with Jesus three years. So if you feel like you're kind of slow in developing your faith, Philip was with Jesus every day for three years and he's still not getting basic one-on-one stuff. So be patient with yourself. It takes a long time sometimes. So Jesus tells Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? Do you still not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is the radical claim of Christianity. It's not that God exists, but that God has perfectly revealed himself in the person of Jesus. I talk to a lot of my non-Christian friends, my LDS friends, people all over the map, and they're like, how do we know what God is like? Can we even know? And people default towards this agnosticism. And I wanna say like the, the thing that pushes against agnosticism is not philosophical reasoning or apologetics, but it's actually being able to see Jesus. That God, how do we know what God is like? He showed us himself in Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The whole Bible is inspired and important, but the most important part is the revelation of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that he shows us himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The great part about right after this text, the next week's text, is Jesus promising the Holy Spirit. This is why we praise, because the Holy Spirit connects our heart and helps our hearts see Jesus, and Jesus helps us see the Father. This is, why seeing, this is why I think that artists and poets and musicians and all of these, like being able to see is more important than even being able to understand, to see with the eyes of our heart Jesus, to love him, to be connected to him, to walk with him, that this is what's true, is that Jesus perfectly shows us God. That's the most countercultural claim of Christianity. 
is that all this kind of, so we, we think about God a lot of times in terms of discovery, right? A worldview of discovery is one based on you know, inquiry and rational induction and test, observe, repeat, test, observe, repeat, right? That's scientific method, that's great. Discovering stuff is good. Scientific methodology is helpful. Um, but if we try to approach God through the lens of discovery, you know, kind of eat, pray, love, go find, go find God, we actually begin on the wrong foot. The Christianity is not a religion of discovery, it's actually a religion of revelation. He shows us, we receive. Our path towards God is more about God bringing us to himself than it is about us bringing ourselves to him. That God takes on flesh, he walks. He's born of a virgin, lives a sinless life. He shows us himself, that he is truth. That more true than two plus two equals four is the reality that Jesus is God. This is why prayer and the study of the scriptures are so central is that the scriptures are written by the spirit. The spirit helps us understand them. The spirit shows the person of Jesus in them. And when we see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of faith, we see the father and we know God. It sounds crazy to say I know God to someone who doesn't know God. It even sounds pretty arrogant, right? Because we operate through this lens of discovery. Oh, you found the right thing? Oh, you found, oh really? Of all the gods, you know the right one? It's like, I didn't have anything to do with this. God found me, I didn't find God. God revealed himself to me. That's kind of the whole point of this text is that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That the era of speculating about what God is like is over. We don't need to speculate. Sometimes it can be fun, you know. Can, can Jesus microwave a burrito so hot he can't eat it, you know? <laughs> is he really omnipotent, you know? This is like stuff you talk about at the lunchroom, at least I talked about at the lunchroom in high school, you know, with all the speech and debate kids, you know? And I'm like, how profitable is this? It's not profitable, right? Because we don't need to speculate. It can be fun, but it's basically a waste of time. God reveals himself. He's true. A lot of times we think about it like going back to the uh, evil scorpions thing, right? If you like just went into my rocks at my house in this lighting, you'd look at the rocks and say, no scorpions. But there's like a dozen dead scorpions right now. <laughs> That's kind of the way the Holy Spirit functions is he gives us the black light eyes. They light up and we all of a sudden can see what we couldn't see before that until we really believe that like our eyes are tainted by sin, this is called the noetic effects of sin, until we believe that even like our eyes are tainted by sin, we're not gonna really trust the spirit to help us see. Gotta do it. And here's the next part, and this is why I think it's hard for Christians, and it's, it's that Jesus is the life too. And here's what he means by the life. Um, so first, there's this text in here that's really easy to misunderstand, so I wanna be clear about it. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. Have any of you walked on water or raised someone from the dead yet? Uh, well, guess you don't believe in Jesus. Sorry, everybody, you know. What does he mean by that? Greater works than these he's gonna do. Also, he goes on to say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is kind of crazy. So I'm gonna do greater things than raise people from the dead and walk on water and everything I say, if at the end I say in Jesus' name, amen, it's gonna happen. That hasn't happened to me yet. I don't know if that's happened to you yet. This is one of those texts you can read it and be like, well, this is a problem. I guess, I've, guess nobody's a Christian, right? Where are we at? Whereas why do we have hospitals if this is true? 
but this is where the, we have to read the Bible in context because what's happening is this is just after Jesus did this radical crazy thing called washing the disciples' feet. So you think it's crazy for a servant, for the Lord, for the master to serve his servants? You think it's crazy for the powerful to act powerless and serve? You think it's crazy for the one who has the most to act like he has the least? You think it's crazy to be so loving and others oriented that you do things like wash people's feet? You'll do things like that too. If you believe in me, you'll do things like that too. The context of this text is has everything to do with the sacrificial substitutionary act of serving in love, freely serving in love. If you believe in me, Jesus says, you will also do radical acts of loving service that blow people's minds. How could you give away that money? How could you give away that time? How could you do that with all that stuff that you have? This is the way of Jesus. This is, this is the good life of Jesus. And it sounds like, okay, so Jesus following Jesus, he says, I am the life, which means I'm the good life. This idea of substitutionary, sacrificial service sounds terrible. Tom Sherry used to say, everyone likes the idea of being a servant until you are treated like a servant. <laughs> How is Jesus saying this? This also, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. What he's saying is, whatever you ask that's congruent with my name, whatever you ask in line with my name, whatever you ask that supports the dignity of my name, in Jesus' name means substitutionary love. God saves, God loves. So if you in prayer, ask the Spirit to help you be a sacrificial servant, he will say yes. Sometimes you lack the opportunity, sometimes you lack the ability to really serve like Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I promise you, if you wanna serve in love like me, I'll give you the opportunity and I'll give you the ability to serve like me. That's this promise here. The problem is, is we don't really always want that, right? We wanna read this verse and say, God, a new Mercedes, in Jesus' name, amen. God, no more student loans, in Jesus' name, amen. You know. But that's not what's going on here. Do you really wanna follow the way of Jesus? The way to the Father is the way of dying to self and death and trusting him to raise us to newness of life? Do you wanna follow that? You know, we as much as possible try not to lie to our son, but one of the ways we lie to him is we say things like this, mmm, broccoli. I feel you know, some moral tension about it. Because <laughs> you don't have to sell him on bacon. He goes, hmm, meat. And like, yeah, easy. You don't have to sell him on cinnamon rolls. Don't have to sell him on uh, apples. You know, these, this stuff just naturally tastes good. But when you try to tell him like, let's eat broccoli, hmm, broccoli, and daddy's eating broccoli, hmm, and I'm lying, I'm mean, more deceiving than I'm lying. I'm acting like I enjoy it. Mmm, broccoli, mmm, you know. But, so he has this plate, you know, and he's like, mmm, meat, mmm, apples. And he goes, mmm, broccoli. But then he can't lie. He <laughs> And he looks at you like. I trusted you. And I think one of the hard things about Christianity is we think that following Jesus is like eating broccoli. There's all this good stuff out there, but we're gonna do the right thing. There's all this great, good life out there, 
the life in the fast lane, rich and famous, sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's all this great stuff out there. And I have to give up all the good stuff. I have to stop eating bacon and start eating broccoli and that's the way, the truth, and the life. And when we lack a belief in God's goodness, that following him, that serving like him is the good life, this is where most of our pathological sinning comes from. This is why you struggle with pornography. This is why you still go to the bottle. This is why you can't stop gossiping. This is why you have such a haughty spirit and you can't let go of it. This is why you're so deeply angry because you're smarter than everybody. It's because we believe deep down that original lie that happened in the Garden of Eden that God withholds good from you. And so you have to go and get good somewhere else. That deep-seated fear of missing out, that God is keeping good stuff from me. And do you really believe that following Jesus is the good life? Do you believe that following Jesus into sacrificial serving love is the good life? Or do you think that's eating broccoli? Because if you think it's eating broccoli, you're gonna keep harboring these little pet sins because you have to go somewhere else to get your sugar and get your sweet. But Jesus is sweet. He's kind. He's gracious. He's gentle. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He's with you. He suffers with you. He serves with you. He's kind. He's all-knowing, and he still wants to be with you. And this is what's hard for us is that this deep-seated disbelief in the sweetness of God and the goodness of God is one of the main reasons that we keep going to other things for satisfaction and knowledge and because we just really think that, man, Jesus is like broccoli. That's one of the hardest things in my heart and my mind is just this, do I believe that following Jesus is the good life, not just the moral life or the right life or the true life, but is it the good life? There's this lady named Catherine and she said it like this, um, all the way to heaven is heaven because he has said, I am the way. That we don't walk the way apart from God and then get God, but heaven is where God is and Jesus said, I am the way and so we're with him all the way to the Father that Jesus walks with us all the way to the Father. We're not earning his presence, but we're walking in his presence into more of his presence. And so my prayer for us at Redemption Gateway is not that we would just believe that Jesus is the way, not just that we believe Jesus is the truth, but that we need really that the Spirit would help our heart rejoice at the fact that he's the good life, not just the right life. So let me pray that the Spirit would help us see that. Jesus, I do ask that you would help us see and sense and experience and believe in your goodness, that we would taste and see that you are good. God, I know this is something that we cannot just sell one another on, but something that your spirit has to give to us as a gift. And so, Father, this is what we ask, that your spirit would move in power in our hearts and our minds, that we would be captivated by your goodness, not just your trueness, God, as we receive communion, as we sing, stir our hearts, stir our affections. Help us be in love with you, not just convinced that you are true.
And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.